2: April, 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans
3: are now battlefields.
2: April, 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April, 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields.
4: April 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields.
5: This is Podcaster and Commander an audio-documentary podcast series about the seafaring classic Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. The series will be an oral history of the film's conception and production, a discussion of the film's critical reception, and the increasing resonance in the now 20 years since its release.
3: Sighting. No, a sound. A reef marker, the bow of a ship. A wraith appears in the fog. The ghost of a ship, like sighting one's death. The indecision here is so cruel. To beat to quarters is like smelling salts to sailors. It's a cold plunge. It's saying you have to wake up. The wolves are at the door. At the center of the frenzy, it's midshipman Holland, Lee Ingleby, who depicts a genuine suffocating anxiety at being required to make the call. He is nakedly afraid of this figure. We are the only ones who have seen what he has seen. And in that second, I don't envy his quandary. His junior and peer, Max Benitez, Mr. Calamy, is ready. A young man of action and assertion. He is, as Hollem should be, more handsome, more oriented. There's a kind of tragic realisation in their tiny exchange that Holum will be superseded. Then there's the crew who stare blankly into Hollem whose silent judgment screams. Will the uncertain glances of this panicked man cause an unnecessary frenzy? When Hollem won't act, Calumny will. In a way, it could reek of the very insubordination that leave the crew at odds with Holm, and their perception of a curse later in the film. At this moment, it's a gesture of friendship. Calumny infers that the order came from Holm. Despite the boundlessness of the ocean and the time that feels longer, the world that feels larger, the threats swollen with the anticipatory thinking time. When the drums beat, your heart races. Hunch running through the bows and bounds, dismounting hammocks, hurriedly snatching up possessions, racing into positions. Despite the panic, it's rehearsed. Rooms peel away, non essential items are stowed, coats are put on, sword sheaths are clipped. Like a world machine, the sailors are at their stations. First mate is in charge of the deck, Captain Jack Albury is on the bow, searching for this shape a mile off in the fog bank. Nothing immediately presents itself. Lucky Jack staring off into the fog. A bell chimes on the deck. And just as this could all be an exercise in hypochondria from one of his subordinate watch commanders, Lucky Jack hears something on the breeze. His eyes sharpen. We come back to the focus point of view of a handheld telescope, scanning the impenetrable fog, when suddenly, from frustration to fire intensity, an ambush is afoot. The game is afoot. From within the fog, a sudden rumbling light. The sonorous boom follows seconds after Jack screeches down. Cannonball strikes into showers of splinters. Steaming lead devastates the decks. Finally, the Acheron is revealed. The fog is misdirection. We're in the teeth of a crocodile. So who will beat to quarters with me on this voyage? One of the greatest living film critics the author of a Walter Hill film, Tragedy and Masculinity in the Films of Walter Hill, my friend, Walter Chaw.
2: The nature of the poet and the artist and the musician, especially in the world, um, who you were just an instrument that wind blows through.
3: Professor from the centre of the history of violence at the University of Newcastle and Napoleonic chronicler, Philip Dwyer.
4: Feel to the opening scene, and especially with the sound effects, because I think uh, we're copies the same kinds of sound engineering techniques that were used in Saving Private
5: Ryan. Your narrator for the series is me, Ken Jacob.
3: Theme Doctor, Andrew Villa, and I am your Captain, Blake Howard. Episode 3, I Shot the
5: Albatross.
3: Peter Weir is a cinematic romanticist. The central dramatic conflict of Master and Commander, the far side of the world, is between the violence of the British war machine and the sublime beauty of the national world, just as it is reflected in Russell Crowe's Captain Jack Aubrey and Paul Bettany's Dr. Stephen Maturin. Master and Commander's deep harmony with the British romanticists is most obvious in the tragic arc of Midshipman Holland, Young man whose stasis grates his shipmates to the point that he embodies the curse of the Acheron's pursuit. Here's Walter Chaw about the romantics William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the author of The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, and how he sees one of the great poems of that era reflected in every part of this seafaring classic.
2: Peter Weir. Is a romanticist poet <laughs> uh, essentially because he understands strongly the story of place. You know, he, even like the the boarding school in Dead Poet Society. It, it's what sticks with me in my head is the grounds and what it looks like when they're riding their bikes across it or the mosquito coast. Absolutely. You know, the, 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 the the decay of capitalism and the fleeing to a verdant Eden, which turns out to be a lie. You know, there's pirates here too. There there's monsters here. And so, you know, romanticism is this sort of longing for Eden and also a uh, realization that the uh, Eden was perhaps always a lie. So for the romanticists, you know, the first Testament to God, was nature, it wasn't the Bible, it was, nat- it was nature. And you saw things uh, that were evidence of a of, uh, of, of motivating principle, a watchmaker, everywhere around you in nature. And when we look at it as it applies to Master Commander, and there's so many ways to uh, attack that film, but one, one really interesting way to unpack it is to say, that this is truly a struggle between nature and the modern, Na- nature and industrialization. On the one side for Master Commander, industrialization is represented by Aubrey, is represented by this idea of, you know, being really good at being very Navy-like, you know, (laughs) not, uh, not, not scally, you know, uh, but really not, not, not Lubbery, but really uh, Navy-like and this organization and this uh, control over natural response, control over order, control over everything. And that's the one side and the other side is 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 the Paul Badney character, the doctor who is a naturalist, who is seeing things in nature as they are. And the course of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is that, you know, the mariner, uh, uh, he's as penance for this thing that's, that he goes through. Um, he has to tell his story over and over again. His story is.
5: And a good south wind sprang up behind. The albatross did follow and every day For food or play Came the mariner's hollow In midst or cloud On mast or shroud It perched For vespers nine Whiles all the night Through fog smoke white Glimmered the white Moonshine God save the ancient mariner from the fiends that Plague thee thus Why look'st thou so With my crossbow I shot THE ALBATROSS, AND I HAD DONE A HELLISH THING, AND IT WOULD WORK HIM WOE, FOR ALL OF HERD I HAD KILLED THE BIRD THAT MADE THE BREEZE TO BLOW, AH, WRETCH, SAID THEY, THE BIRD TO SLAY, THAT MADE THE BREEZE TO BLOW, NOR dim NOR RED, LIKE GOD'S OWN HEAD, THE GLORIOUS SUN UPRIST, THEN ALL OF I HAD KILLED THE BIRD THAT BROUGHT THE FOG AND MIST, "'Twas right,' said they, "'such birds to slay that bring the fog and mist. "'The fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, "'the furrow followed free. "'We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. "'Dropped down the breeze, the sails dropped down, "'twas sad as sad could be, "'and we did spake only to break the silence of the sea.'
2: He murders an albatross uh, right at the edge of an ice field, essentially, that that, that their their ship has escaped and it sends them into a doldrum where there's no wind and the sun beats down on them. And there's a doldrum indeed in Master Commander as well. And um, he's blamed, the Mariners blamed for uh, their bad fortune for shooting the albatross. What's not often um, remembered about the poem, I think, is that initially all of his shipmates Celebrate him shooting it. They're yes. saying, you know, hey, we were in the mist, we we're in the fog, you know, but but you shot the evil seabird, and now we're in the sunlight. Good for you, good job. So they're all sort of complicit in this. Coined the idea of uh, yes. of, of, of a point of view uh, as a metaphor. Coleridge is is the the source of it. The thing about the ancient mariners, it's about the moment that he breaks the curse. You know, of, of this act of random violence where he he shoots the albatross for no reason and is forced to wear it around his neck the moment that he's forgiven in a way is the moment that he sort of blesses Unconsciously, just sort of feels joy when he sees living creatures. After not seeing anything alive for a long time, all of his crewmates have died. He, this is a terrible scene, and the only he, he can't even speak because his mouth is so dry. He has to bite his arm so he bleeds into his mouth, so he has enough moisture to speak. It's a terrible scene. He's almost dead, and he looks over the the side of it and he sees these sea snakes. And earlier, he's seen the sea snakes. He's compared himself to them. He's like, slimy things survive, and so did I. He's one of those <laughs> foul creatures. But he sees them later in, in in the poem, and he blesses them. He's like, oh, tears, you know. If he had, if he could cry, he would cry at that moment because he sees something alive and vibrant. He's like, oh my God, this is evidence for the romanticist, evidence of God in nature. So um, the albatross falls from his neck, you know, and in a way he's forgiven himself. In a way, because he's seen um, design, a, a great design in 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 life, um, and so Master Commander similarly uh, 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 plays with with, with the, these ideas about how why are they in the doldrum? Is it because Jack has pulled him away from the naturalist thing in in the sort of personal pursuit and it's it's poignant to me that that's the moment that they have that that great scene where you know the the doctor says look this is uh are we talking as friends or is we talking am i talking to my captain because as friends you're making this personal and <laughs> as a captain good job you know i'll follow you to the end of earth but as, as a friend this doesn't seem like you know the job anymore
4: if you please they're exhausted Jeff. these men are exhausted you've pushed them too hard Stephen, I invite you to this cabin as my friend. Not to criticize nor to comment on my command.
2: Well, should I leave you until you're in a more harmonious frame of mind? What would you have me do, Stephen? Tip the ship's
4: grog over the side. Stop their grog. Nagel was drunk when he insulted Holland. Did you know that? Stop 200 years of privilege and tradition. I'd rather have them three sheets to the wind on occasion than have a mutiny on my hands see, I'm rather understanding of mutinies. Men pressed from their homes, their chosen occupations, confined for months aboard a wooden prison... Stephen, I profoundly respect your right to disagree with me here in this cabin, but I can only afford one rebel on this ship. I hate it when you talk at the surface in this way. It makes me so very low. Do you think I want to flog Nagel? A man who stood beside me on the gunwale and hacked the ropes that sent his mate to his death under orders, under my orders. Do you not see it? The only things that keep this little wooden world together are hard work, discipline. Jack, the man failed to salute. Oh, for God's sake, Stephen, there's hierarchies even in nature, as you've often said yourself. There is no disdain in nature. There is no humiliation. Men must be governed. Often not wisely, I will grant you, but they must be governed nonetheless. That's the excuse of every tyrant in history. From Nero to Bonaparte. And I, for one, am opposed with authority. Your opposition it is, is egg egg, not my concern. misery, and oppression. You've come to the wrong shop for anarchy.
2: And so there's industrialization taking over in warfare and all this industrialized murder, um, at war with knowledge and the accumulation of knowledge and seeing design in nature um, and discovering things in nature. And so that's the push and pull of master and commander between these two people, these two men. But also, you know, on a on a on a grand macro uh, stage, that's what the film is about. Is about what is it that we should nurture in, in, in us, yeah, we're, 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 we're apes and clothes, you know, we are <laughs> like a, in the liminal place between those two things. And we are the arbiter of these things. You know, we are the arbiter of what we, what we allow to survive. That's the, you know, we're struggling with it now, you know, with, <laughs> with, with, you know, do we continue to pollute the earth or do we try to save it, it maybe too late? And so. But there's also, but that comes from the ancient mariner, where when the albatross first appears to the crewmen, they're feeding them worms that they've taken from the bread. You know, there's all of these notes from the poem are literally in the film. The whalers that they free are on a boat called the albatross. Yes. The idea of, you know, there's one person that's responsible for them being in the doldrums is you know uh, uh, of course in the in the shipment who drowned himself in there but you know there, there there's even and, images and he, where they talk about the
3: cannonball which is literally you know figurative exactly right the albatross is the cannonball around the man's mm-hmm. neck for the entirety of this epic poem um, and, and, that, that.
2: The, and that that's one of the images that coleridge uses about men you know when they sink in the water they sink down like lead so he's holding the sort of lead ball as he's going down in the water
4: a minute. Jonah. He's causing it. He's calling it up, don't you see?
5: You gave me such a start. You feeling better now? Yes, much better. Thank you. Captain thinks we'll get our win tomorrow. I'm sure of it. You've always been very kind
3: to me. Goodbye, Blainey.
2: Language the, the the images the intent of the meaning of the poem and the meaning of romanticism is evoked by master and commander in, in the in the, in this way that I don't believe can be unintentional yes. not entirely you know and you don't have to be a Coleridge scholar or a scholar of British romanticism to just sort of get it you know you know you know there's this versus this there's you know you know it, it, it can happen without having a familiarity with it but it just seems like it's so closely tide that i feel like i want to speculate but anyway even without knowing you know it doesn't really matter if he was based on you know that death of the author doesn't really matter (laughs) ultimately what um peter weir's movies do for me though, is the same things that british romanticism did for me and you know made made, that was actually what i studied in in graduate school was british romanticism but you know what spoke to me so much was this feeling of longing this feeling of, of 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 wanting something that never existed you know it's uh um it's it, it's And people think you know british romanticism that means you know fabio on a book cover or something it's like the opposite it means um real sadness at something that you've lost and maybe you've never, never had um to begin with that, that everything that you believed you could achieve or believe that you could be is ultimately perhaps a lie that is not actually real you can't really get there and You know, another interesting thing, a fascinating thing about Coleridge, which explains perhaps some of the supernatural element of Master Commander, where after the suicide, the wind does indeed pick up, right? Mm. Something that Coleridge really believed in was this idea that the imagination of the individual, you know, this is way before Einstein, right? The imaginary imagination of the individual creates reality. Yes. As, as you go, you know that they are strong enough to create. There's a great Dan Simmons short story called uh, Isaiah to Dare Not Meet in Dreams that he turned into a novel called The Hollow Man. And it, it deals with this issue as well, which is that you individually create reality as you go. The things that you see, the things that you believe, the things that you want. And this isn't some sort of like hippie, like think good into the world, <laughs> but more of a literal quantum idea that your perception fuels reality. You know, the Schrodinger's cat thing, if you can't see it, it's both things at the same time kind of thing. It's like your perception and your ability to perceive certain things is reality. And there's that great moment right before, you know, the the, the suicide where Aubrey reveals that he believes in the superstition. And the doctor says, oh, no, no, you too. I'm a man of science. <laughs> uh, but I just thought you. But he does believe it, and as he's giving last rites and he's saying the prayer, you know, he he, he kind of glances up at the corner of his eye and he sees the wind, filling the sails. That's his belief speaking the reality into the world and the perception of all of these men, you know, who feel bad, but he had to die, you know, um, that they believe it enough that it's become real. And that's something that Coleridge sort of introduced as an idea, um, early on. And the romanticists, you know, I, I love them too because they're whatever they were, they're all really just a bunch of like humanists and atheists you know they believe Mm -hmm. that god was created in the heart of man and not the other way around um and, and, and 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 so they're the creative element in their own universes right and so just just so um aubrey and uh what he believes is is what creates the reality of the film
3: At the beginning of the film, we see an ominous utensil drawer of surgical instruments unfurled before the thunderous shaking of a boat and blood spurts from wounds play havoc with the footing of our medical professionals. So here's Professor Philip Dwyer from the Centre of History of Violence at the University of Newcastle in Australia to discuss the depictions of violence in Master and Commander. And as a premier Napoleonic scholar himself, Shares impressions of the rendering of the world.
4: Yeah, there's that, which I, which I think the film does really well. And the other thing it does, which a lot of um, films, not only from this period, but lots of other war films shy away from, is that is the role of children in warfare. So all of the midshipmen in this film are around the age of 13, apart from the hapless uh, 30-year-old midshipman who commits uh, suicide. Um and, that's and of course, that's how young they start, started out. I mean, Nelson was 13 when he first joined a ship as a, a midshipman. So it's a very, very long apprenticeship and they're expected to know every in and out, so to speak, of any ship uh, before they're old enough to take command. But, but being so young, they also confronted at times, of course, with the utter... Uh, violence and terror—that is a naval battle, which I think this film, again, and I'm sure lots of other people have said this, does particularly well. I think, because you see the full impact of what uh, damage a cannonball can make, not only on the ship itself but on the people in it, um, and, that, and the manoeuvring around—you know how how to best position yourself in order to uh, have maximum impact on the opposing ship it does all that very well and of course the british were were very good at this because they trained their men particularly well at firing and loading and there's a scene in the film where they practice this the the gunning and trying to get the time down i I think on average they're, they're expected to fire about every 90 seconds from memory or something something like that which is a bit of a feat in itself because you know the pulleys and the the wadding and the shot and then the cannonball all of that had to be loaded and then you had to aim and, and fire or wait to be told to fire more likely
5: it's a one second sir lads that's not good enough we need to fire two broadsides to her one you want to see a guillotine in piccadilly no you want to call that raggedy arse napoleon your king no you want your children to sing the marseillaise
4: no mr Mort, mr pulling starboard battery a bullet wound or a, a, a deep gash uh might have been enough to kill you because it easily got infected so if you got shot in the leg or in the arm as we see with this young midshipman then an amputation is the way that you that you go there's no sort of patching it up and hoping for the best because it would become infected in that case and then you'd have to cut off the arm anyway so it was sort of a preemptive kind of surgery very basic surgery if you like I mean what we know often fail to remember is that there's no anesthetic so these guys are clamping down on leather strips in order to to, you know i think there's laudanum possibly but that's about it and i think it might have only been local or they might put you out a little bit or they try and get you drunk a little bit in order to sort of allay the pain but none of that uh, worked terribly well so you could you could die just as much from the shock of surgery as you could from the wound itself. Yes. And and um, rates of death were high in this period, both on land and at sea, because of the poor state of surgery and care for the wounded after battle. And that's that's why we get the higher rates. It's not so much you were killed in battle, um, which could happen on a higher scale in some battles more than others you know during the napoleonic wars we have the largest battles land battles that have ever taken place in history up until that point in time with hundreds of thousands of men and and thousands of cannon on each side and it's the cannon that often cause the the greatest uh, harm yes but it's the it's the uh the the deaths as a result of wounds in the weeks and months that follow that usually that usually make up the high toll so that anywhere up to about 50 percent of uh, an army could be killed in that way It's, it's really interesting the way you get a glimpse of the kinds of civility that exists on board ship now people might think that's just being English but there is there is a very um, specific purpose to that and that is to train men to remain cool and calm and polite under pressure so that when it does come to combat everybody is sort of you know bringing it down a few notches in order to remain calm cool and collected so there was a very specific purpose through that english civility that other I don't know I don't know if it existed in other navies of the world at the time possibly the, the emerging American Navy but I'm not sure about the French and the Spanish the other two really big navies at the time part of the civilities that's the flip side of the discipline that has to be maintained on board these ships and this is this is a smallish frigate with a I think what 50 something uh, people on board mm. um, the two things we have to understand is that uh, british naval crews are made up of uh, a real um, collection of different nationalities i mean men were pressed into the navy often they didn't volunteer to go in and because they're not volunteers the discipline is quite harsh especially you know to the modern viewer so flogging was quite common we see an instance of that when a crewman is disrespectful to an officer and deliberately physically bumps into him that kind of thing would just not be tolerated so that's i think a good example of how captains had to be extremely harsh but what the men would probably consider to be fair if the guy stepped out of line for whatever reason and did something like that, then the rest of the men around him probably would have thought that he deserved what he got. Um, But we're we're looking at crews of lots of different nationalities. So when you see captains talking about England and this is England, I don't know to what extent the, (laughs) the men on board would really care all that much, so much as that they have been, you know, well trained, they've been drilled for months and months on end. They probably haven't seen land for months and months on end. There is nowhere else to go. It's a question of life and death for them. I don't think that they would be terribly, you know, patriotic in the sense that we would understand it. Um, and you may also find that there were Frenchmen on board, for example, fighting French ships, or Americans on board who are fighting American ships, and so on and so on. Um, and interesting to see, there's only one black character that I noticed on the on the ship, but there would have been lots of black sailors uh, in the day. Yes. And depending depending on the kind of ship and the nationality, they were more or less well integrated into the crews. There wasn't that kind of Segregation and racism that existed, uh, possibly later on, and possibly on American warships in particular, in, into the 19th century. But um, so I thought that I thought that was an interesting little little thing. Patrick O'Brien uh, he does his research, and uh, this was based upon um, something he found in the archives. Apparently, about two ships' captains who were pursuing each other, one American and one British. The life of the captain, the British uh, captain Orpby, is loosely based upon that of Thomas Cochrane, who was a bit of a a bad boy in the British Navy, and who uh, had the habit of pissing off his uh, superiors, and therefore never able to advance very far beyond the rank of captain, and was always given these crappy little ships, frigates, to to a captain in the hope that he would, you know just be forgotten about, Um, he did the kinds of tactics that we see in the film of, um, you know, subterfuge, of hiding in the fog, of um, of, uh, pretending that the ship was something else, of flying different colours and then at the last moment turning out. All of those kinds of strategies were practised by captains during the wars. In the hope that I mean, it was it was a it was a chess game of some sorts on the high seas, or a game of cat and mouse, if you like. So every possible game in the playbook was used in order to trick the adversary, in in order to capture the ship uh, with, again, the least amount of damage possible, if possible. The only time we do see uh, large amounts of sailors and ships being sunk are in uh, naval actions between two military, two naval sides, you know, yes. sort of like Trafalgar or the Battle of the Nile and so on. Yes. But when we're dealing with naval ships trying to capture prize ships, which are usually merchant ships of one kind or another, then there wasn't um, the need to sink it. Well, the game was to, you know, use it to, to catch it to enrich oneself. Yes. <laughs> In actual fact, um, Mr. Bligny and I did make one very interesting find. Is that right? Let me guess. A stick? Mm-hmm. Tell him about it, Mr. Bligny.
3: It's a rare phasmid, sir.
4: A phasmid? It's an insect
3: that disguises itself as a stick in order to confuse its predators.
4: Yeah. And the only thing I felt like you know, the other technical bit to it I found just interesting was the um the thing about the oak. Um yes. and the different types of oak that so this was an American oak. I don't know if the British used that American oak to build their warships, but the Americans certainly did. And Apparently, his cannonballs did bounce off it. It was so hard, unlike the white spoke that the English were using, uh, which is quite fragile in some respects.
2: There's something beautiful about Master Commander because it expresses to me the hope that we can still find a common ground. You know, here's Aubrey with the doctor saying, hey, um, thank you for showing me the stick insect i had never considered that a study of nature could uh feed into a study of naval battle tactics and the more <laughs> that we could get close here right and the, the film really right is about this i love that Stephen
3: immediately he's like i don't know if that was a good idea <laughs> it's like
2: fuck yeah it seems like you, you, you know the, like like nobel after he invented dynamite right like, no no no, no. <laughs> oh, fuck so the, the, there's Something beautiful, though, too, about being able to see order in nature and design nature. and That's what, you know, uh, that's what he's all about. He's, you know, the the doctor, he's like, you know, yes, God causes them to change. But what if they cause themselves to change? You know, so all of these lines become very poignant to me now when I look at it as a story about two men with different ideologies and different ideas about the structure and order of the world coming together because they're friends, because they respect each other. Because they're allowed to, they, 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 he's he allows them into the room to speak to him openly, and he's listening, and because they love each other, and they're listening to each other, and they're bound by love of music, and they're bound by you know things that are ineffable, um, and uh, help them achieve sublimity. M- m- music for the Romanticist was the purest form of uh, of expression through through the arts because you can't describe it. You know there's nothing that you can do to tell i can't tell you what it's like to hear the beatles for the first time um and so there's something about master and commander that's so beautiful to me because it is about a sharing of ideas and a respect for each other's ideas and an acknowledgement that we so seldom have anymore that all of our beliefs are stemming from the same sort of things we're just coming at it from a different way and that doesn't make you the devil and it doesn't make me the devil. You know, we're somewhere in between here. If we can just sort of learn from each other instead of immediately discounting the one or the other, um, there may be hope for us. And I, whether or not I believe that anymore, I don't know if I do. <laughs> but Master and Commander for me, I, it, it, it plays for me now like Royal bombs. You know, one of these movies where I can't watch more than 10 minutes of it without crying. Yeah. And it's 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 so wistful you know and I, I don't think that's the intention of the film it's not like a it's not like bright star or something you know it's not that kind of film but you know just showing the kindness the 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 fear that he has for blakely you know it's like yes yeah, father will understand what's a life but the mother you know these little things <laughs> the, are uh, that that t- oh my god that yeah just- you know and the responsibility he has and f- for Blakely, and Blakely comes up at the end. It's like, sir, I'm sorry, but um, I was just told that I'm not going to get to, you know, go fight the <laughs> bad guys. And he's like, no, I need you here. When we're done, you're taking over the ships. like, take you over the ship, sir. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Like these little moments of being a good dad and a good manager and a good friend and a good Man, a good yeah, person, good person, in um, the world, is it destroys me. When he <laughs> thinks his friend is gonna dead, they take him back to the Galapagos, and so they can he can like honor the promise that he made to him. I mean, these the way that you move to the world, the wake, if you'll pardon the, the the image, the wake that you leave in the world has to be positive. It has to be positive. There's nothing else. No, there's nothing else that I can, you know, and I, I love that little throwaway line too that he's like, We have to kill him before we, 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 we declare peace with the French. <laughs> you know, and it's like there's a meaninglessness to what he does, and he realizes that, you know, but he also, because of the wake that he leaves when he gives the captainship to the young man, you know, at the end of it, and it's like that's like that's amazing. You know, and he says, "Oh, well, even with Mister
3: Pullings, when he gives him yes, his assignment, it's exactly
2: just... it's. You know, th- th- this is a mentor who is uh, who is seeing his. You know, like in the last Jedi, right? Yeah. It's like the the thing about mentors is that your your students outgrow you. And here he is, like finding joy and meaning in helping somebody
3: yes.
2: get to the next place, helping somebody achieve things that they want to achieve in their lives." You know, there's nothing else for us here no. than that. That's it.
5: Podcaster and Commander is produced by Blake Howard on the far side of the world.